Welcome to the 424th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome back political scientist Don Kettle to COVID Calls, who I spoke with early in the pandemic, and we'll get an update from Don on what he's been working on in this last period of time. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and also on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at USF Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Radiant Martinez, star of Cibola Threepeat, dies of COVID at 30. This was written by James Yodice, the journal staff writer for the Albuquerque Journal. This appeared February 20th, 2022. Cibola High School has lost one of its athletic legends, Missy Martinez, the diminutive but powerful left-handed pitcher who led the Cougars to three consecutive state softball championships from 2007 to 2009, has died. Martinez, age 30, died February 4th from COVID-19, her father Gary said. She was the type of person that pulled everybody together, said Gary Martinez, whether it was her family or whether it was her team, That's just what she did. Everyone said that she brightened up the room whenever she was there. Martinez was a second grade teacher at McCollum Elementary School in Albuquerque, and she was also active in building a new interior design business, Haven Plus Honey. She also was interested in becoming a professional photographer. She was having the best time of her life, Gary Martinez said. Martinez's best friend and former Cibola teammate, Cheyenne Crum, was deeply saddened when she learned of the passing of the godmother to her daughter. She was radiant, Crum said. I don't know if anyone had the pleasure of meeting her, but they would say the same. Crum said she and Martinez grew up together as best friends and as softball players and thought of one another as sisters. We were two peas in a pod, said Crum. It was one thing to play our favorite sport together, and it was one thing to grow up and have life experiences together. I was thankful to have those moments and experiences with her. She was really important to my family. During her playing days at Cibola, Martinez was arguably New Mexico's most dominant athlete in her circle. She won 98 games in her four-year career at Cibola, including 28 victories in 2009 and 29, which is listed as the single season state record on the New Mexico Activities Association website in the 2008 season. She had 25 wins in 2007, the first of three straight seasons in which the Cougars won a Class 5A state title. Martinez stood five foot three, but was a prolific strikeout pitcher, topping 300 twice in her career, mixing in a nasty rise pitch with an excellent changeup. She struck out a whopping 1,211 batters in her four varsity seasons, and she finished with a superb 0.87 earned run average in her Cibola career. Little bitty old hands, right? She was sick, Crum said reverently. Crum was Cibola's center fielder during those seasons. She wasn't the one to talk about how badass she was. She mastered what she had. It was an awesome thing to watch, she said. 
after high school, Martinez moved on to play at New Mexico Highlands, where she was chosen the National Player of the Week in her first week as a freshman after throwing a no-hitter in her college debut. Martinez played two seasons at Highlands before leaving the sport to focus on attaining her degree in elementary education. She was the youngest of five siblings. She was the centerpiece of the family, her father said. Sometimes we looked to her as the person who would be fair about everything. She was very considerate of others. She was a good listener, and people would look to her for advice. Martinez is survived by her parents, Gary and Yolanda, and siblings Luke, Dennis, Yvonne, and Adrian. Her services were held February 14th. The obituary of Missy Martinez, who died this month of COVID-19 in New Mexico. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and I'm very happy to welcome Don Kettle back. Let me introduce him. Don is the Sid Richardson Professor at the LBJ School, the University of Texas at Austin. He previously served as Dean in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Volcker Alliance, the Brookings Institution and the Partnership for Public Service. He has a very long list of publications. I'm going to name just a couple, including Can Governments Earn Our Trust, which appeared in 2000, 2017, Little Bites of Big Data for Public Policy, which also appeared in that year, and his most recent work, The Divided States of America, Why Federalism Doesn't Work, which appeared in 2020 and was just out when we talked last time. Don Kettle, welcome back to COVID Calls. Scott, it is great to be with you today. Let me find out, as I usually do at the beginning, just where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Uh, I'm talking to you from Austin, Texas, and living right downtown. The situation here, as with all things in Texas, has been incredibly volatile since the very, 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 very beginning. The uh, Fortunately, as, as we're talking, the numbers are coming down from the infections in the Omicron variant, but uh, there's the continuing battle over how much of the state to open up, whether or not people should be obliged or even should be encouraged to wear masks, the battle over trying to deal with the economic implications of this and the way in which COVID has played directly into not only the, the ideological battles going on here in Texas, but a gubernatorial campaign where there's been a battle among Republicans to see who can get further to the right on this and with Democrats making the point about the need to try to keep people safe so that the the politics here has been just simply wild and incredibly contentious. And if anything, it's, I think, tended to increase the, the polarization that we had already seen taking place here. We talked on April 30th, 2020, Don, and it's, I, I went back and looked. It's hard to imagine this world, but there were 61,857 deaths from COVID at that time. Um, we were already talking about it as a generation-defining disaster at that moment, rightfully so. And now here we are almost two years later. Let me ask you a personal question, if you don't mind, just is there a memory of this period of time that really sticks out for you, something that really associ you associate with what it's been like to live in COVID? Yeah, it's uh, that's a great question. I, I remember back at the beginning, and it was just a week or two before we talked, and my wife and I were talking about getting masks. So we were trying to figure out what to do, whether or not we should do that. And there were, I think we found one or two that came highly recommended. Cloth, of course, in those days, since the rest of the N95s and KN94 masks weren't available to the public at that point. 
my wife said, you know, let's try to get one or two because we don't want to stock up on stuff that's just going to be sitting around. Little did we know at that point that we'd still not only be talking about wearing masks now, but having these incredible pitch battles over whether or not you should. Uh, that was something that I don't think anybody could have predicted two years ago, but it really set the stage for so much of what it is that's happened since. So thank you for sharing that. And I think a lot, of, it really resonates with me at the time. I've told this story before, but early on, you know, I had my two cloth masks that I bought online and my brother chastised me and said, you shouldn't wear it. And, and, and so I didn't because, you know, I didn't want my brother to, to think I was doing the wrong thing. And, and that's what the CDC was saying at that time. And this was February yeah. of 2020. And what a distance we've, we've traveled. Let's stick with masks for a second, Don. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in your career in studying public policy, have you ever seen a material, a day-to-day a -day material object, a, a medical material object stand in for partisanship the way that these masks have come to stand in for American partisanship? I don't think there's ever anything that I can recall that's even remotely like this. And it really is, as you point out, Scott, uh, masks have become a kind of proxy for partisanship. And uh, one of the things that I don't think we could have exactly imagined at the beginning, but which has really come to pass since is the degree to which masks themselves have become a, a symbol and, a, and such a piece of division between conservatives and Democrats, uh, conservatives and, and uh, liberals, between Democrats and Republicans, between all those who are really struggling to try to figure out how to deal with it, and that it would be such a wedge of partisanship that would come in. And, and it's interestingly enough, not just here in the United States, where I'm speaking to you from, but in so many parts of Europe in particular, where there's been a battle over what the science is, what the science says about how it is the people are and should be responding. Uh, even Germany, which at the beginning of this pandemic seemed to have the situation about as well in control as anyone in Europe, at least, has now found itself in the middle of, of deep struggles over whether or not the idea of mass mandates is a, some kind of infringement on freedom. And so this is something that I think that for sure we've had to try to figure out how to, how to try to deal with. But I, I just can't recall anything in the history of American federalism that has been a, a kind of a, a symbol of the kind of divisions that exist. You can maybe reach back to the idea of, of water fountains and the idea back in the days of segregation, along mm, with restrooms, about different kinds of conveyances where people had to sit in the back of buses. So we had the bus as the symbol there too. So there, there's some occasions in the past, but uh, this is something that from coast to coast, from north to south, uh, from even differences, as you point out, Scott, inside individual families, the mask has become this kind of point of the sphere of division in ways that I think uh, are both uh, remarkable and in some ways, I think, scary in terms of the way in which federalism is has, has or has not successfully found a way to navigate through this process. So let me just stay with this for one second. Was was there a, a moment in time in which you said to yourself, this has become political, this pandemic has become political in a sort of ir irredeemable way. Now, everything is political all the time. I would put that right. down. Yeah. But that it became that the partisanship got baked into the daily sort of understanding of the pandemic. I'm sort of curious when, if you think that's happened, I think you do, but but yeah. when 
and, and not just Trump at the lectern, but like when did it really become something that it became a sort of reliable issue that Americans were going to disagree on based on party affiliation? Well, you know, it's it obviously, as you point out, has been partisan from the very beginning. And one of the things that I think is a lesson that we've learned is that people say, well, I'm just going to rely on the science that realizing how much uncertainty there has been surrounding the issues of science and therefore how much political values have come to fill in the difference between what we can be pretty sure of from science and the kind of actions we need to take. So that this was an issue that was ripe from the very beginning because of the uncertainty. But it seemed to me in the in the early stages of, of say April and May back in 2020, it was clear that at that point it was becoming irredeemable, at least in terms of the divisions that we were seeing. Uh, I actually did some, some poking around at that point between the, the states that had decided to, to essentially shut down, to, to close down and to try to ask people to, to self-isolate where schools and bars and restaurants got closed down. And if you look at so April 1st as the as a tipping point on that, at that point, it was clear there were big, 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 big divisions between uh, the red states and the blue states. Uh, and it tended to be correlated with, with states that had already decided whether or not to accept the Medicaid expansion that was part of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so early on from about the about the 1st of April or so, the question of whether or not to shut down and how quickly to shut down, how aggressively to shut down, at that point, the divisions were becoming clear and it became pretty clear soon after that that it was becoming a flashpoint in the divisions that were happening. Uh, one of the things that I think is a lesson out of this too is that it's, it's really dangerous to have crises that occur in the middle of major national election campaigns. And mm. here was a case where uh, in 2020, we were looking for a presidential race where uh, Trump was trying to do all he could to try to minimize it, or at least to suggest that things were under control because he, he wanted to project that sense of strength. And where Biden, on the other hand, was campaigning on the, the idea that Trump had lost control of the situation and that if he were elected, he would bring control back. So it was very clear that in the middle of that election campaign, very early on at uh, April and May, uh, then going into June, that, that the divisions were sharp and stark. And at that point, probably something that was unbridgeable. Don, you wrote the book, The Divided States of America, Why Federalism Doesn't Work, and you wrote it before the pandemic. Um, I want to ask you on so how you see that that work now. It, it strikes me, I mean, I have kind of a working hypothesis here that under different leadership, um, there might have been an opportunity in 2020, because it was an election year, in fact, uh, to maybe seize back a bit of the federal prerogative on key issues that have become, you know, so problematic with, you know, states fighting each other, environmental issues, civil rights issues, that this pandemic and the real raw terror of it in the spring of 2020 and into the summer was an opportunity with maybe some wise leadership to, to pull back a little bit, you know, some of that and, and actually sort of rebuild federalism to a certain degree. Maybe that's a naive view. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think there were uh, two things to say about that. One is that uh, the Trump frictions that were introduced into the system, the the idea of whether or not this was real, whether or not uh, the good people just didn't need to worry about wearing masks and all the other divisions that, that developed, uh, 
that that could have been different. And I suspect that if, uh, if, if Trump had found a way to be able to take and to seize that leadership, that he'd be president of the United States today. And because of, it's arguable that a, a fair piece of this was that people were just having this strong, powerful sense that the government had lost control of the situation and a different kind of strategy where Trump was at that point saying, uh, this is this is real, but we're going to get it under control and that we're not going to force you to do things you don't want to do. I think that that streak of, of uh, libertarianism in a way would have, I think, been successful in trying to help him build more support and would have reduced the amount of friction and therefore maybe improved the odds that he might very well have been reelected. Uh, coupled with that is the fact that uh, with all the battles that we've had since about whether or not Trump did or did not do a good thing, the thing that's just this remarkable, inescapable finding is that the development of the mRNA vaccines during 2020 and the fact that they were, it was clear by election day in, in the pip pipeline to the point that they'd be available very soon. Uh, people at that time almost didn't believe it because we had been told it was going to take a year and a half, two years, three years, right. that the previous record for developing a vaccine was four years. And so for the Trump administration, through the strategy of Operation Warp Speed to develop it and get it ready for deployment was itself an amazing story. So, so that was another opportunity that was lost because Trump could have campaigned on the basis of this is something that we're doing, that we're going to have vaccines in your arms very soon. Uh, it, as, as we got to that point, people were, in a sense, not believing it because the partisanship had already gotten so fierce. But those were two huge, big lost opportunities that would have been transformative in terms of the elections. And then I think also transformative in terms of federalism, because we would not have thrown the gasoline on the fires of division that were already raging out there in the states. Let's stick with Trump a second. I don't like to give too much airtime to him, but I actually think in this regard, or just following up with you, um, I know that um, you know the American political development and American political history generally does not like to leave a lot of space for you know one individual to somehow shift american politics it's it's usually much more structural than that mm -hmm. do we have to rethink that now well i think we at least have to rethink the fact that uh, that, that trump was such an important piece of the way in which things developed and uh, a couple of different thoughts one is uh, was did trump make the play that he did and did the resulting politics emerge as they did uh, because Trump had articulated a vision and people decided to jump on board? Or uh, was he successful to agree to which he was successful primarily because he saw a parade and found a way to get himself at the head of it? Uh, that's something that I think that we're going to take a long time to sort out. And that's why I think uh, some comparative analysis might be useful to look at the way in which other nation states had uh, emerged out of this. One of the things that's pretty interesting is that uh, it's. I looked at other federal states back in the middle of 2020, states like, like Germany and Brazil and Switzerland and Australia, and that the, the initial impact in terms of deaths and other kinds of problems, uh, the spread of COVID was, was worse in the United States than anywhere else. And so that there was, again, this opportunity to be able to, to try to shake out that question that you that you ask. It's clear that federalism itself wasn't a root cause of the kind of effects that we had in the United States, that some of it clearly had to do with political leadership. 
and with ideological division. And some of it clearly came from Trump himself mm. with the kind of exploitation that he was successful at being able to launch and creating this base that he then used to try to, to run for re-election and, and in some ways uh, came, came remarkably close to doing that. So I think that the, the person clearly matters, but as I suggested as well, you see some of the uprising in, in the UK, you see the frictions in, in yeah. France and Germany and elsewhere. And you can you can suggest that, uh, was it that other people were following Trump or was Trump part of a, of a much broader case of, of division that had circulated around this kind of underlying issue about libertarianism and freedom on the one side and degree of state control on the other to try to beat back this virus? It's a historical analogy here is sometimes hard to find because this pandemic has been such a, yeah. uh, a unique phenomenon in many ways. But in, 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 the, in this regard, it's it, I wanted to ask you about this because, and I think about the Vietnam War and this, you know, we have some disasters in American history where you do have an election in the middle of them, thankfully so. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get a change of party and you actually see, you know, a, a, a different ideological position fleshed out in a new administration dealing with the same disaster. And, um, you know, Vietnam is, I, I think, a pretty good example of that in, in relatively recent memory. I wonder what, what you, I mean, this is by way of asking you what you think the Biden administration has done, how they've done with this, but also as a political science study, what's it been like to watch the Trump administration leave and then, you know, long serving Democrat, you know, very mainstream Democrat Joe Biden come mm -hmm. in and bring Democratic politics to it. Yeah, it was just, it's been fascinating to watch and fascinating to watch the, the pivot that the administration has engaged in on the one hand and those things that it's found very difficult to change on the other. The, in terms of the pivot, the, uh, the, the kind of concerted effort that they've made first to put uh, to, to put uh, Anthony Fauci forward as a spokesperson uh, is very much in the model of what it is that uh, the George W. Bush did in, uh, in appointing Fat Allen to try to lead the recovery after Hurricane Katrina. So there was someone who was viewed as, as and tried to be positioned as a neutral expert to try to lead the charge. That was something that clearly was uh, was a work there at the beginning. And throughout now, in fact, in terms of the, what the Biden administration is doing, having a, a resort and a focus on a neutral competence with the idea that you get experts without part part of the division to be able to lead the charge on that piece. So there's that. There was the idea of creating a, a more centralized administrative task force to try to deal with the with the vaccination strategies. And you look at the way in which vaccinations themselves have changed. Uh, the there's a important and interesting and little explored st uh, study really i think to be done about the initial launch of the vaccinations which originally had these these enormous vaccination caravans with people lined up uh, in cars all over the place at convention centers and sports facilities 
to try to get shots. And then the way in which it became a debate over whether or not the, the National Guard ought to be deployed, given the fact that the National Guard really doesn't have uh, expertise in the administration of vaccines. The idea that FEMA would create these centers, which never really quite happened, then to the uh, the percolation down and into the private markets with places like like Walgreens and CVS mm-hmm. and Walmart and others that became the centers of the vaccination effort, which is where we are now. So that that kind of evolution institutionally of the strategies for vaccination is, I think, really interesting. And it says something about the relative merits of, of strong central power when you're trying to engage in that kind of enormous logistical effort versus a, a decentralized effort that brings the private sector in. So I think we've seen that from the from the Biden administration as well. But they've they've been caught flat footed in the distribution of, of masks, the question about trying to figure out how to deal with these recurring uh, COVID outbreaks that have occurred through variants as well. And so they've been they've struggled to try to figure out how to deal with that, which has in some ways undermined their credibility, I think unfairly, but has undermined their credibility because those things that Biden said at the very beginning he was going to wipe out, that we were going to have the situation under control, has has been frustrated by the fact that the COVID virus has proven a whole lot more cagey than, in fact, even some of the experts had suggested early on. Talking to Don Kettle today on COVID calls, and Don, you mentioned um, FEMA, that last riff you were on there just a minute ago when you're talking about the devolution of responsibility. And everybody remembers this in the United States, uh, um, talking about bringing in um, the military and field hospitals and um, that was done in some very limited ways early in the pandemic, but then that the National Guard would be engaged. And then, as you said, it sort of devolves down and out to, well, no, it's CVS. And and that kind of discussion in emergency management policy has been out there for a while yep. mm-hmm. around, around privatization and about even getting rid of FEMA entirely, which is an extreme position, but it has been talked about. And now... I wonder if that discourse is going to what that discourse is going to look like now. And I guess it's a way of asking you how FEMA has done with this pandemic. But also, do you think this is maybe a turning point towards that privatization trend? Yeah, I, I think I think in some ways FEMA has turned out to be a bit of a bit player in this. That hmm. its primary expertise has not been in public health issues, and where its real specialization has had to do with with supply chain management in a sense more recently and so i think it's been a relatively small player that it's the real problem at the federal level has been the difficulty of bringing the different voices together and in particular trying to ensure that the the cdc which should have been uh not only the, the center of expertise and, and public pronouncements but also a way of trying to develop and share data which as we've learned relatively recently uh, has been difficult because the CDC has sat on data that it had and didn't share and distribute. It, it really was a, a kind of, of, uh, of organization that found itself outmatched by, by, the, by, the, by the virus itself because not only that was there uncertainty around, but its, it's str- public role that it's had has been difficult to try to deal with. On FEMA's point, I think that the, the thing that we've learned is the importance of as I suggested, supply chain management and the idea that that FEMA's great virtue is essentially not doing things, but finding ways to get things done. 
to be able to deploy people uh, with surge capacity in certain areas with contingent workforces, that it's the partnership with, the, with private sector organizations, something that it learned after Hurricane Katrina, when it turned out that Walmart was a whole lot better at getting itself reopened and getting the, its supply chain back in place than, than the government was with FEMA. That I think we're going to see more of. So I think in terms of FEMA, it's the idea of, of reconceptualizing its role as one that involves leverage across multiple par parts of the sector, as opposed to doing things itself. Uh, something that's in a way always been the reality, but I think is, is much sharper as a result of what, what it is that we've seen. That's so interesting. And I think of now about, um, let me ask you about states because, you know, and I think about maybe like um, New Jersey and California on one side and and um, or Massachusetts and um, Florida and Texas on the other side, in, in which there's been a kind of similar argument that's been made by governors of those states, which is, well, I guess we're going to have to do this on our own. But when they say that, they mean something very different. And, and I can't help but think that the next presidential cycle is we're going to have some governors in there who are going to be there on their COVID credentials, but their COVID credentials are going to be totally different in terms of their approach to this pandemic. Um, are we at a turning point in terms of state power, in part driven by the way governors have taken the reins in the middle of this pandemic? I think we are at a turning point. And I think for two reasons. One is that the, the federal government has not proven especially successful at leading the charge on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, to be sure, I think that uh, the Biden administration has reversed some of that and that uh, that we've had Fauci as the, the, the spokesperson for the government and for strategy and for science in this in a way that has been, I think, important and influential. But when it comes to what it is that happens in our own hometowns, about how is it things work, that it's been the governors and and in some cases, even in some of the states that you mentioned, it's only the, the governor's doing what they're doing, but the governor's deciding not to do anything and then allowing some of those powers and, and decisions to, to drift down to the local level as well. And then in some cases to create friction. So I think it's, uh, in my mind, less a matter of leadership than a matter of, of identifying and charting the, the pain points in the system. Where have the frictions been? And it's been uh, the federal government versus the states, the way in which some states have gone in one direction, other states have gone in others, and the degree to which then within states we've had a, a mirror version of this question of friction and about where leadership and centralization ought to come from. How much decentralization do we need? And what we've really seen in, in states like, uh, like like Texas has been an effort to try to, to for, for governors to say, for the governor here to say, you know what, it's it's an issue that we have under control. We're going to try to get ourselves reopened again, finding himself in conflict with cities like, like Dallas and Houston and right. Austin and San Antonio. So we see that the same battle mirroring itself out. I've talked to people in California who have said that, you know, thank heavens for federalism, because if we had all been under a lockstep necessity of trying to obey federal policy when either there wasn't one or whether we didn't agree with the policy that there was, that our citizens would have been much greater jeopardy. And so to have people who are, who are wildly enthusiastic about laboratories of democracy, but on the other hand, it's, it's clear that federalism has proven dangerous to our health, as I wrote in a column for Governing Magazine a little while ago, because of the enormous disparities that have resulted because of the way in which different states have approached this differently. 
So the, the challenge is not only trying to figure out, I'm there, I'm strong, I'm going to try to lead our state, but also trying to understand the nature of the outcomes. So do people, who is it that the, the people hold responsible for the outcomes as, as they exist? And for that matter, for citizens, what kind of outcomes are most important? Is it uh, being protected against this, the, the mm-hmm. rages of this disease on the one side, or is it, uh, boy, I want to be able to get these masks off, get the kids back to school, be able to go to a restaurant again and have, end up at a, at a baseball game. So it's not only the question of who leads, but what standards we use for trying to, to measure and monitor success. You know, Don, I, I talked to um, emergency management um, educator and theorist Alessandra Giralaman just last week on COVID calls, and she's written a book about the concept of disaster justice. And I thought of you when we talked about that because um, because her core claim, and we talked about it in some detail, that um, that if you believe that people have a right to not die in a disaster, in a preventable disaster, um, and I think you could make an argument that that's enshrined in the Constitution in many different mm-hmm. ways, or certainly in plenty of public policy at the federal level that would indicate that, um, and the existence of the Stafford Act itself, then it does, shouldn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat in California or Arkansas or South Dakota. Um, there should be some basic protections that are there. So uh, the enthusiasm for the states and the people from California, as you said, who may have said, hey, I'm really glad we have federalism because it kept Trump from, you know, mm-hmm. meddling in our affairs here in the state. I still I worry about that because I think that doesn't solve the problem of people who are in Alabama and, and Arkansas and Texas who want safe policy. Yeah, I think that's just such a great and important point. And uh, I looked at this with uh, two colleagues, Catherine Barrett and Richard Green, in a short report that we issued about a month ago. Uh, from the IBM Center for the Business of Government called Managing the Next Crisis. And one of the things that we have to look at is uh, that just how poor our data has been to try to find a way to have the conversation about the issue that you just raised. Uh, one of the things underlying all this is that we have, I, th- I think, and I agree with you, a, a kind of social justice imperative that comes along with government's role in dealing with these issues. And that has to do and deal with in particular uh, I think an obligation to ensure that some parts of society are not disadvantaged by comparison with others, that we, we shouldn't have a policy that has important racial implications, which COVID has had from the very beginning, both in terms of the way in which it's affected uh, the, the health of those who have lived in some some communities where deaths among Blacks has, have been at a higher rate. The, the point of trying to convince people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds to try to get the, the vaccination, which again has shown racial patterns, and where the first the, the initial disease and then the vaccination rates have, have really varied tremendously by where it is that people live. Some of this is the product of whether or not, for example, they have health care to begin with, how, whether they have access to healthcare systems, whether they have easy access to pharmacies for getting the vaccinations. They're, they're deep and enduring patterns, but one of the things that's been difficult and trying to identify this and to get a, our handle around what I think is an, an, an important moral and ethical issue is that our data on this and trying to measure this has been really so lousy. And it were it not for the Johns Hopkins Center, which has been measuring some of these issues and which has it's essentially been naming and shaming states that have 
decided not to go ahead with the distribution of the kind of data to measure this, that they've helped to try to create political pressure in an effort to try to get a handle on some of these numbers. So we have a, a kind of basic obligation, I think, to ensure that citizens, regardless of who they are and where they live, have access to at least the, the, the basic levels of support, but where the difficulty of trying to figure out how well we're doing depends on how good our measures are. And our measures are often not very good for the very reasons that some people are so inherently disadvantaged to begin with, that the same forces that have allowed governments not to try to address their, their issues about housing and poverty and health to begin with are the same ones that make it difficult to create data systems to identify the problems that we want to try to solve. People can find that report. Uh, this is uh, Managing the Next Crisis, 12 Principles for Dealing with Viral Uncertainty by Catherine Barrett, Richard Green, and my guest today, Don Kettle. And you can find that at businessofgovernment.org. Don, we have just a couple of minutes left. So I want to ask you this question. It's been all over the news in the last couple of months about the um, the slide in the US towards civil war. And the reason I wanted to ask you about this, it it's actually follows very closely on this last point you were making, which is, um, is there a tipping point at which it, the, the configuration that we're trying to hold together, a uh, collection of states which have proven, as you just said, some of them willing to take extraordinary action either for or against public health. Um, it, can the center hold or are those, you know, books and articles, I, I think they're good scholars. I don't want to say they're headline chasing, but but we've seen struggle before. We've seen strife before. Yeah. We've worried yeah. about the center holding before. I name checked the Vietnam War a minute ago. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, uh, and it's one that I've worried about. And in, in my book, Divided States of America, I've really spent a lot of time really setting this question up at the end. And and some people have actually criticized me for, for not solving it at the end, but it's not clear there's an easy solution to the, the question yeah. to begin with. Uh, on the one hand, there really is a plausible argument that what's happening is that we've sowed such division that we may not be able to come back this time. On the other hand, if you look historically back to the very, 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 very beginning of the Republic, uh, we can see even even before the Republic came into being, there was the, the Benjamin Franklin cartoon, Join or Die, which most people have seen with a, a snake with its with itself chopped up into pieces. And the question is whether or not a, 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 a state, which is uh, a, a country that is with lots of individual states that are chopped up, can in fact survive. This is something we, we've been debating throughout the entire history of the American Republic. And we, we've survived civil war, which came very close to tearing the country completely apart. We've survived economic disaster in the Great Depression. We've had to try to deal with issues of civil rights. Time after time, we've come upon issues that where people have said, well, this is really finally it. I just, the, the country can't survive. And the great genius of the, of the founders was to create a system with lots of shock absorbers in the system that would allow it to navigate and negotiate through these crises. But on the other hand, the thing that is that's most worrisome is that we've got a kind of, of slow motion process of division that's increasing as time goes by. And that raises sharp questions about how we're going to try to, to create shock absorbers that work better this time than it has before. 
uh, I think it's a, it's a safe bet in American federalism to say that we're going to have tremendous conflict around a particular issue and that we're going to say this, we can't possibly survive this one, and that we always have found a way in the past to be able to keep the system going. But the tensions this time are, are pretty deep and long-lasting, in part because they've been going on for so long, and in part because they've divided the country so fundamentally. You've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch my next COVID Calls episode at 8.30 p.m. Tuesday. I'll be talking to historian of science Amy Slayton about her new project on 2020 studies. So please do join me for that. And as always, a pleasure to be with Don Kettle. And thanks for making time, Don, and good luck on projects going forward. And I hope we can get a chance to talk again soon. You can count on that, Scott. I really appreciate it. These are such fascinating and important issues. And I'm always glad to have a chance to be able to talk them over with you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Thank you.